0: Father, thank you, Uh, thank you, thank you for giving us so many reasons to sing your praises this morning. Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for Jesus, who was sent to earth 2,000 years ago as a baby born into poverty to grow up, to suffer and die for our sins, and rise from the grave victoriously. Father, help us this morning to be overwhelmed and amazed by your grace uh, in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his precious name, amen. Last summer, my family spent some time at Luby Bay Campground at Priest Lake. On the second day, we went down to the beach, and I noticed there was this very large, odd log structure on the beach, Someone had hastily put together a rudimentary teepee. They had stacked several logs end-to-end on the beach, and several of these logs were very large, over 100 pounds, maybe 200 pounds. And it was kind of there very tenuously um, and definitely a safety hazard, but I didn't think much of it. A couple hours later, I looked at the beach and noticed that one of my boys was chasing his younger brother down the beach at breakneck speed, and my younger son, Andrew, was running as fast as he could, like this, and he looked behind him to see his brother, and he kept running, and he ran into this huge teepee of logs. And he instantly hit the teepee and fell over, and he was screaming in pain, And because he hit the teepee so hard, one of the larger logs began to wobble, and this huge log came crashing down right on Andrew's back. Uh, And right away, we knew it was pretty serious. So my wife and I jumped out of our lawn chairs, ran across the beach to Andrew. He was screaming bloody murder, and we very carefully rolled this log off of him. And there was—he was scraped and bruised, and he was in serious pain. We gently rolled him over, and we realized after a while that he could not feel his legs. So five minutes elapsed, 10 minutes elapsed, 15 minutes elapsed, half hour elapsed, and he still could not feel or move his legs. So of course we're thinking, this kid's going to be paralyzed for life. I had visions of 40 years from now pushing him around in a wheelchair. So my wife kept asking me to call 911. But all I could think about were dollar signs. So eventually, I called 911. And literally within minutes, these rescue workers emerged somehow out of the woods. I don't even know where they came from. They just showed up. And then a few minutes later, an ambulance showed up. A few minutes after that, a police boat showed up. And then a few minutes later, a helicopter showed up all there to rescue my son, Andrew. Now, I was pretty amazed by the efficiency of this rescue operation. We called 911 and literally within minutes, four groups of people show up to rescue my son, Andrew. I I thought about all the logistics involved in this rescue operation, and I was pretty amazed and impressed by all the infrastructure required to send four different rescue teams to rescue my son on the beaches of Priest Lake. Now, this was a pretty amazing rescue operation, but a much more impressive, much more involved, much more costly rescue operation happened 2,000 years ago. And of course, I'm referring to Christmas Christmas is, by far, the greatest rescue operation to ever take place. Unless we understand what we're rescued from at Christmas, we're never going to be amazed by the grace of God, which raises the question, when Jesus came at Christmas on a divine rescue mission, what did He come to rescue us from? Well, several things, and this morning I want to highlight three of those things that Jesus rescues us from at Christmas. Well, what does Jesus rescue us from? He rescues us from hell, he rescues us from Satan, and he rescues us from sin. And that's why Christmas should be an incredibly joyful season. Let's look at each one of those this morning. First, Jesus rescues us from hell. Now, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Why? Because he loves people and he wants to see them rescued. Well, what does the Bible say about hell? Hell is very painful. Consider Matthew 25:30. And cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The pain of hell is so intense that it causes gnashing of teeth, grinding of teeth. One scholar says this, It's never true to say that something hurts like hell. Nothing hurts like hell. Hell is also eternal. Matthew twenty five forty one, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The fire is described as eternal. Matthew 25, 45 to 46, Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Then one more text, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. Paul writes, "...and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction." away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. In hell, there is no beauty, no singing, no refreshment, no friendship, no leisure, no rest, no love, no recreation, no hope because it lasts forever, and worst of all, no fellowship with God. Hell is a horrible place. It's important for us to think about this around Christmas time because Jesus came specifically to rescue us from this. Several years ago, I was very, very sick. I had a high fever, headaches, body aches, cold sweats. I was in bed for days, and I woke up late one night to throw up. Which I hate doing more than anything else in the world. It's nothing worse, in my opinion, than throwing up. But I couldn't, I just kept dry heaving over and over and over again. And as I sat there in my bed, dry heaving with sweat dripping off my forehead and my body aching, in intense pain and misery with a high fever, God whispered to me Dave, hell is gonna be like this but worse for all eternity. But because I love you, I've rescued you from this. Dave, why in the world would a loving God send anyone to a place as horrible as hell? Because God is not only loving beyond comprehension, He's also a God of perfect justice. And we must never forget that when we sin, we are sinning against a holy, righteous God who has done nothing but bless us with common grace our whole lives. Furthermore, our punishment is based on the fact that we are sinning against a God who is worthy of infinite glory Imagine that one of your friends was sick of all the panhandling in downtown Spokane. After a while, he walked up to a homeless person and punched him in the face. What would happen to that person? He'd probably get into some type of legal trouble. But what if that same person punched in the face the mayor of Spokane? He'd get into more trouble. What if he punched in the face the governor of Washington, which may tempt some of you this morning, but we're called to honor those in civil authority? He'd get in even more trouble. What if he punched the president of the United States in the face? He'd get in even more trouble. Why? Why? The greater the person we sin against, the greater the consequences. When we sin against God, we are sinning against a being who is worthy of infinite glory and honor and praise. There is no greater being who can be conceived in the universe than Yahweh, God Almighty. When we sin against Him, It's a huge deal. Therefore, our punishment is of infinite duration because he's a being worthy of infinite value. John Piper says this, Degrees of blameworthiness come not from how long you offend dignity, but from how high the dignity is that you offend. And because our sin is offending a being who is worthy of infinite value, our punishment is also of infinite duration. That's how seriously God takes our sin. Well, Dave, how does Jesus actually rescue us From hell. He entered this world as a helpless, poor, dependent baby. The maker of all things lived in the womb of a nervous, poor teenager in a poor backwoods country for nine months. Amazing. What incredible humility and love! And he lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. He bore the wrath that our sins deserve. Well, Dave, how in the world can Jesus atone for the sins of billions of people that deserve eternity in hell? Because he's a being <laughs> worthy of infinite value. That's how. He lived He died, He rose from the grave to rescue us from eternal conscious torment. That's why Christmas is such a wonderful, joyful occasion. You've been rescued from this. Jesus experienced hell on the cross so you would never ever have to experience hell. This of course raises at least two questions. First is this, have you thanked Him recently? Have you thanked the triune God for devising this incredible rescue plan? Have you thanked the Father and the Son and the Spirit who in eternity past decreed this glorious plan to save you? Our lives as Christians should be one giant act of thanksgiving to God for rescuing us from hell. The next question is, have you been rescued? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Jesus for salvation? Have you humbled yourself and admitted that you need his forgiveness and grace and his rescue? If you haven't, why not do that this morning? Jesus rescues us from hell, but it gets even better. Second, Jesus rescues us from Satan. He rescues us from hell, and he also rescues us from Satan. Well, why do we need to be rescued from Satan? Because he wants to destroy us. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Satan is constantly on the prowl looking to destroy people's lives, looking to destroy your life and my life. And he's really, really good at doing this. He's been doing this for literally thousands of years. He's a pro. He knows all the tricks of the trade. And he has ruined millions, if not billions, of lives. In other words, you and I are no match for the devil. Several years ago, one of my sons played football with a bunch of third and fourth graders, and he was um, average size on the team. He probably weighed at that point 70 pounds. I think the biggest kid on the team probably weighed 105 pounds. Before their first game, they practiced maybe seven or eight times. They weren't exactly heading for the Hall of Fame, Uh, but, but they had fun out there playing flag football against other kids their age. Now imagine this team playing the Seattle Seahawks this afternoon. How would they do? Well, this season. (laughs) The average NFL lineman is six foot five and weighs 310 pounds. Most of them can bench press 400 pounds and easily squat 500 pounds, which means that the average NFL lineman could probably bench press my son's entire team. These guys are big, they're athletic, they're fast, and they're very, very strong. My son's team is no match for the Seattle Seahawks. They would get devastated. In a similar sense, you and I are no match for Satan and his demons, They are much faster, stronger, wiser, and more powerful than you and I. Therefore, we need to be rescued. And Christmas is the celebration of Jesus rescuing us from Satan. Well, Dave, do you really expect me to believe in the devil? In the early part of the 20th century, a very, very famous liberal theologian, Rudolf Bultmann, said this. It's impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries, and at the same time believe in the New Testament world of demons and spirits. Maybe Boltman described some of your perspectives this morning. I get it. So why do I believe in the world of Satan and demons? There is far too much deplorable evil and wickedness that cannot be explained by natural selection to not believe in the devil. Furthermore, I have seen literally with my own eyes demons speak out of people. I've seen demons take control of people's bodies, throw them on the ground, and make them crawl around on the floor like cats and dogs and I've seen God supernaturally deliver people decisively from demonic oppression. But more importantly, Jesus believed in demons, and Jesus rose from the grave proving that he's a pretty reliable witness. So yes, I do believe in Satan and demons, and if you don't, it's because Satan has tricked you. Well, how does Jesus rescue us from Satan? Ironically, not through some, some great show of power or force, but through death. Listen to Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is one of my favorite Christmas texts because in this text, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus took on flesh. He became like us. Why? Why? according to this passage, to suffer and die in our place in order to destroy the work of the devil, destroy the devil's power over us. Well, how does Jesus' death destroy the devil's power over us? The devil really has limited power, but one of the main things that he does is he tries to convince us all the time that because of our sins, we are dirty, rotten, guilty, condemned human beings. Because of Christ's death, we know that we are forgiven, adopted, justified, redeemed children of God. So when Satan comes to us and lies to us and tells us how awful we are, we can say, Satan, you're right. I am an awful, guilty sinner, but because Jesus died for me, I'm forgiven and cleansed and justified, so Satan, stop lying to me. Furthermore, this text says that Jesus has destroyed Satan, and he has also destroyed the fear of death. If we're Christians... Because Christ has destroyed the power of the evil one through his death, we can be forgiven and we don't have to fear death. Death is not the end. It just ushers us into paradise if we're children of God. Now, make no mistake, Satan is still alive and active. But ultimately, he cannot destroy the saints, and he lives and dwells under the sovereign sway of God Almighty. So if Satan does come after you and try to make your life miserable, it's all under the sovereign authority and control of God Almighty, and God is going to use that for good in your life. How do we know? Satan had to ask God to tempt Job. Satan had to ask God to sift Peter. And in both cases, God said yes. The Romans 8 says that God is working all things for our good and his glory, which means hard things and satanic oppression. God is using, if you're a Christian, for your good to make you more like Jesus. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. Nothing. Because Christ came and suffered and died, he dealt a mortal wound to Satan. Satan is described as that great dragon in the book of Revelation. And when Jesus died, it was like he took a massive sword and stabbed Satan right in the heart. It was a mortal wound. But Satan is still flailing around, flapping his tail, causing all kinds of damage because he knows that his doom is sure. Christ's first coming, guaranteed that when Christ returns, he will decisively remove Satan from God's good creation. And right now, he is a wounded, dying beast. All because of Christmas. Because Jesus came, born of a virgin, lived and died and rose from the grave. Because of that, you and I can be rescued from Satan. But it gets even better. First, Jesus rescues us from hell. Second, Jesus rescues us from satan and third jesus rescues us from sin more specifically he rescues us from the enslaving power of sin and here romans 6 is the key passage romans 6 1 to 6 paul writes what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified. That's an aorist active indicative verb which means decisive final action in the past. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What is Paul saying? Let me summarize. Paul is saying that because of our union with Christ, When Jesus Christ lived and died and rose from the grave, we lived and died and rose from the grave with him. Somehow, mystically, mysteriously, all the saints were in Christ when he lived and died and rose from the grave. This is called union with Christ. And when he died, our old self, enslaved by sin, under the dominion of sin, that old self was crucified, murdered, killed. He no longer exists, which means that you and I are no longer enslaved to sin. And if we are, something is drastically wrong. Therefore, Paul can write these amazing words, Romans 6 too. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 66C. So that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. 611 and 12. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 614. For sin will have no dominion over you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? 6:18 says that Christians have been set free from sin. Again, through our mystical union with Christ, our old self was crucified with Christ, therefore we are no longer enslaved to sin or living under the power of sin as Christians. Theologians call this definitive sanctification, which is distinct from progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification takes place the moment you believe the gospel. Progressive sanctification lasts your whole life. According to Wayne Grudem, This initial step in sanctification involves a a definite break from the ruling power of sin. So the believer is no longer ruled or dominated by sin and no longer loves to sin. Because of definitive sanctification as described in Romans 6, there has been a definitive break with sin. Your old self is gone. It's been defeated decisively through union with Christ. February 2nd, 2014 was the greatest day in Seattle Seahawk history. Why? It was the day they won Super Bowl 48. The Seahawks defeated the Broncos 43 to eight the largest margin of victory for an underdog and tied for the third-largest point differential, over 35, in Super Bowl history. The Seahawks built a 22-0 lead at halftime and then a 36-0 advantage before allowing Denver to score. It really was a mercy score. The Seahawks' defense scored a safety on the first play from scrimmage. You guys remember that? Wasn't that awesome? Okay. Okay. They also became the first team in Super Bowl history to score on a safety, a kickoff return, and an interception. The Broncos were held to almost 30 points below their scoring average. The Broncos were decisively and definitively defeated by the Seahawks, and nothing can change that. They can't go back and play that game again. That game is over. It's done with. The Seahawks won decisively. They thrashed the Broncos. If you're a Broncos fan, sorry. Jesus Has definitively and decisively thrashed the old self in us. It's been murdered, it's been crucified, it's gone, it's done away with. And we can't go back and play that game again. It's over. Remember, crucified, aorist, active, indicative, an action in the past that cannot be repeated. In light of this, Christians should never, ever say something like this. This sin has defeated me. I'm done fighting. Or, I've battled anger my whole life. I will never, ever have victory. Or, I've struggled with lust for decades. I'm just going to give up and throw in the towel. Or, my marriage will never get better or I will never be a disciplined person, or I will never be able to forgive so and so. All those statements are a denial of the efficacy of the rescue that Jesus has completed for us. According to Romans 6, if you're a Christian, you have been rescued from the enslaving power of sin. Again, Romans 6 says this, 6.11, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, 6.14. Sin will will have no dominion over you. Now, I am not advocating some kind of modified Wesleyan sinless perfection. No, the Bible's very clear that we're gonna sin till the day we die. Sadly, because we live in these fleshly bodies. But nonetheless, Paul is saying in Romans 6 that Jesus Christ has broken the power of sin in us, which means that we should expect to grow in godliness and to have significant victory. God has given us everything we need to be rescued from the enslaving power of sin. So when temptation comes... When you are tempted to grumble or complain or be anxious or to lust or to be greedy or discontent or not forgive, in that moment of temptation, you must remind yourself, Romans 6, the power of sin has been broken in me. I do not have to commit this sin right now. Jesus Christ has rescued me from the enslaving power of sin, plus he's filled me with the Spirit. I don't have to sin. Paul tells us that we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, some of the older hymns understood this better than we do. I love the words of O oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. John Wesley writes this. Speaking of Jesus, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. What is he saying? Jesus Christ has broken the power of sin and it's been forgiven, canceled. He breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the prisoners free. How about Rock of Ages? Be of sin the double cure. The double cure. Christ does at least two things. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Augustus Toplody, who wrote this hymn, he understood Romans 6. Jesus rescues us from the guilt and the power of sin. He is the double cure. We don't have to be mastered by lust, anxiety, or pride. There is real hope for change. Defeat and failure are not inevitable for Christians. I was talking to a young man this week, struggling with sin, sexual sin. I said to him, brother, go back and read Romans 6, 7, and 8. There is so much hope and power for change in those three chapters. Chapter 6, Jesus breaks the power of sin. And then chapter 8 describes how we are filled with the Spirit for growth and godliness. That's the solution. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Jesus is the solution. Jesus came to rescue us from hell, Jesus came to rescue us from Satan. And Jesus came to rescue us from the guilt and the power of sin. Well, back to the sandy beaches of Priest Lake. We thought that Andrew was going to be paralyzed for life. So we called 911, and instantly, four different rescue teams showed up. The paramedics showed up, the ambulance showed up, the police boat showed up, and the helicopter showed up. Eventually, they put Andrew on a stretcher and put him in the back of an ambulance and took him to the hospital to get x-rayed. Fortunately, he's fine. No permanent damage. But he had some pretty significant scrapes and bruises, and he was in a lot of pain for quite a while. Which means that he didn't really need to be rescued. We could have stayed three more days at Priest Lake (laughs) instead of packing everything up early and leaving and going to the hospital. I'm not bitter about that, I promise. <laughs> Some of you think you're kind of like Andrew. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bruised up. I'm a little scraped up, but I'm doing just fine. I don't really need to be rescued. Yeah, like I sin a little bit. Life's a little hard sometimes. I make a few mistakes here and there, but I'm doing okay. I don't need the helicopter and the paramedics and the police boat and the ambulance to show up. I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. Not realizing that apart from Jesus, you are in deep, catastrophic trouble. Apart from Christ, you will go to hell for all eternity. Satan will ruin your life and sin will have mastery over you in this life. But there's a way to be rescued. Christmas is the celebration of an incredible rescue operation. Jesus Christ has come to rescue us from hell, from Satan, and from the power of sin, and all those who trust in him have the hope of rescue. Let's pray together.